The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. But I know where I always start. I always start knowing what my vision, my goal, my endpoint is. And then I build a plan. And after I build the plan, then I talk about tasks and how much those tasks are going to cost and how long it's going to take to accomplish them. And that's where I get into trouble with the Biden administration's so-called infrastructure bill. Because as laudable as some of the goals of the Biden administration's infrastructure, or as some of their representatives call it, his jobs bill, it's a tranche of spending, which is destined to pass through that muddy and unstructured process called budget reconciliation, which might indeed be put briefly as, this is the wrong way to do the right thing. I get frustrated with the dealings of the party of no. Yes, yes, yes. I'm as frustrated as anybody about the party of no. But I completely agree with Senator Manchin's insistence that Congress, in order to function, must return to regular order. You can't get bipartisanship through budget reconciliation. You can only get the best ideas. You can only bring the party of no back to the party of sometimes by bringing them into the room and talking about the issue. So committee study sessions, committee hearings are an opportunity for states, localities, and citizens to present both problems and potential solutions to lawmakers so that the lawmakers can consider them study them, and then act on them. You know, it's what we used to call storming, forming, and norming. Used to be a pretty normal thing. And then when you do that at the committee level, then each of the standing committees in the House and in the Senate gets to take those committee proposals and roll them up at their finance committee level to determine the size of the budget. In other words, how much we're gonna spend to meet what objectives and how are we going to pay for it? What's the revenue side? And you know what one of the benefits of regular order is? That when you have hearings when there are arguments in the hearing room that get carried out of the hearing room, et cetera, 
those proposals, those differing warring proposals get reported by the media to voters. And then after that, you bring a bill to the floor and you have a big debate on the floor and, and you make amendments to the bill, to the budget bill on the floor because it's a further opportunity for the American taxpayer, the American voter to understand what the bill does, how it's gonna impact them, and then to weigh in, to call or you know tweet or send a, a email, whatever, to tell their representative what they need. And this infrastructure bill, which will pass through budget reconciliation, we are told before the 4th of July, does none of those things, none of them. So let's just start at the beginning. Let's talk about what the word infrastructure means. Merriam-Webster defines infrastructure as the system of public works of a country, state, or region. Also, it says, it's the resources such as personnel, buildings, or equipment required for a public work activity. It goes on to say that infrastructure is the underlying foundation or the basic framework. And last, that infrastructure involves the permanent installations required for military purposes. That's how you define infrastructure as a system of public works. And that last statement takes us directly to the US highway system, the interstate highway system. Dwight Eisenhower proposed a 10-year national highway building program based on what he had learned from the German Autobahn system during World War II and how it contributed to the efficiency of um, the German military. During and after World War II, the United States lacked a national highway system that would allow it to move military and civilian cargo and personnel efficiently during a national emergency. Eisenhower proposed that the federal government impose a gasoline tax on every gallon purchased for a period of 10 years in order to build out for national security purposes an interstate highway system. Now, when you think interstate highways, I want you to think Interstate 80 from San Francisco to New Jersey or Interstate 10 from Santa Monica to Jacksonville, Florida, okay? I don't want you to think about little loops around major metropolitan and super connecting major metropolitan and suburban areas across the country. Another example of a interstate highway is I-95, which goes down the East Coast from Canada to Florida. And it was begun during the New Deal as a toll roads known as the Yankee Division Highway through New England. Uh, his <clears throat> Eisenhower's proposal, which you can read about at reimagineamerica.org, if you just do a search on interstate highways or on Eisenhower, 
there's a, a couple of pieces there that will uh, explain Eisenhower's thinking and how uh, the system evolved because it was limited initially in scope to interstate connectivity, leaving all other road construction adjacent to the thoroughfare to the states and municipalities through which it passed. 60 years later, rather than having sunsetted, the National Highway Fund is the largest contributor to a network of freeways that encircle every major urban and suburban corridor in the nation. And it is still funded by user fees, gas taxes, plus additional taxes on heavy vehicle tires and some additional taxes on the type of equipment used to build roads. It amounts to about $100 billion this past year. And it is spent on both new highway construction and maintenance activities throughout the 50 states. The infrastructure plan, or as it is otherwise called, the Biden's jobs plan, proposes to add some $650 billion in additional spending between now and 2030, partially paid for with increased corporate taxes. Now, Secretary Buttigieg did mention increasing gas taxes once before the idea was squished by the White House, which makes no sense whatsoever. User fees are widely accepted as a fair way to pay for roads and bridges. Second, there hasn't been an increase in the gas tax in over a decade. Nobody's proposing a 10 cent increase, but maybe a penny or two would raise some money. Third, higher gas taxes and other user fees could be seen as an encouragement to carpooling or to discourage extra driving, both of which would help us to meet the national climate change goals of net zero carbon by the end of this decade. Other forms of transportation are also included in this gush of newly minted money. Airports. You know, every time you buy a ticket on an airplane, you're, you are charged a user fee that contributes hundreds of millions of dollars into the federal, actually billions of dollars into federal coffers annually. And somehow, somehow they seem to get diverted before they get spent on our aging air travel system. So that makes me skeptical, cynical by nature, wonder how this specific allocation of money will differ and how it actually gets spent. The fact is that before we spend a lot of money on making our airports beautiful, as this bill envisions, how about we make them safe? Our air traffic control system is decades old. It's absolutely legacy technology. It's a shame when compared to our other peer developed nations. And the reason that we haven't been able to build a new air traffic control system is that it, there's never been a way to guarantee multi-year funding for building out such a system. As a 
air traveler, I think building that system, which would require higher level skills than building new terminals, should be the number one priority for American expenditures on air travel, American government expenditures on air travel, until such a system is designed, implemented, tested, and completed, and a maintenance program funded. But it won't be. That won't happen because the air traffic control system isn't visible or glamorous. It isn't visible enough to you as an average consumer, and it isn't glamorous enough. So the more crowded the skies become with more flights, the more the risk becomes that the unthinkable could happen. Why not prevent that? Why not have prevention instead of regret? Or as they say at the FAA, what's the highest acceptable annual level of air traffic deaths? High-speed rail development. Wow, what a great idea. Except we've never been any good at implementing it. You do remember California's ongoing $100 billion boondoggle, do you not, from nowhere to no place? I can't imagine spending one dime of US taxpayer money on high-speed rail that is not matched by private investment. Because to do anything else is to say, we haven't learned our lesson. Wow, another laudable piece of 21st century infrastructure is high-speed rural broadband. Our urban broadband environment has been largely built by our existing private sector telecommunications companies. They've earned back their investments through user fees. If the pandemic taught us anything, it taught us that High-speed broadband is a necessity of life in 21st century America. So the question is not whether the nation needs to finally stop talking about rural broadband and actually build it. The question is how we should build it and who should pay the final bill. Who's going to build it? The government? No, government's not going to build it private companies are going to build it. So is it going to be the telcos or someone else? Who's going to benefit? Well, rural America is going to benefit, and so will urban America, because broadband helps to plant crops. It allows for uh, more suburban development of uh, second home communities and uh, such, where in remote a remote working environment, more of us could benefit from more space. So the question then becomes, who will pay? Well, we know that the last hundred feet will always be paid for by the existing and whatever new internet service providers appear as a result of an effort to build out high-speed rural broadband. So the question then becomes, shouldn't these ISPs also, over a period of time, help to repay part of the cost of building out this vital component of 21st century American infrastructure 
for which they will have earned new paying customers? I just offer that as a question at this point. One of the benefits of expanding rural broadband will be to deliver telemedicine to vast new parts of America. And we have seen before the COVID-19 pandemic and through it, that telemedicine can decrease the cost and increase access to quality healthcare for many millions of Americans. Rural broadband will deliver this new access to less populated parts of America, where proximate hospital access has become a significant concern. But that, that specific concern is a subject for another day. All that said, healthcare is not a structural part of. America. It's a social part of America. It's not part of the infrastructure. It, what it is, is a very significant part of the social safety net, which is already 72% of total federal spending. When healthcare spending initiatives equal to the amount of money that's going to get spent on highway and bridges is included in an infrastructure bill. Well, let's just say a large skeptic, a large measure of skepticism about the entire purpose of the bill is in order. What are the administration, the Biden administration and the Democratic congressional leadership trying to pull here? in yet another omnibus bill they promise that somebody else will pay for. Stop and think about that. Again, I think there are many areas of development from sewers to schools to superhighways to solar technology that are worthwhile expenditures. The issue is how to pay for them. Debt already exceeds gross domestic product, and it's rising exponentially. Who will pay? Who should pay? And when is debt too much? How much of this spending is really one-time only spending, and how much of it will become a part of the permanent base budget? Base budgets, again, a topic for another day. Remember when Congress cuts spending, it really only cuts the rate at which the baseline budget spending will increase over a given period of time. It's never actually money that goes away, a decrease, a debit from your account. How much will managing all of this spending increase the size of government itself? In other words, how much of this $2 trillion proposed is going to end up being government jobs? Government jobs that come with a permanent employment guarantee, another permanent expense. You know, right now the infrastructure bill is a, a 23-page white paper full of lovely promises. That 23-page white paper 
obscures thousands of pages of surprises coming for all of us as Democrats, instead of working across the aisle, attempt to jam this sack of special interest goodies through the reconciliation process. So that after they pass the bill, we will find out what is in it, that there are no shovel-ready projects. And rather than creating 19 million jobs, it's going to create about 2 million additional jobs over what the current rate of growth would have produced. So that means we're going to produce about over a decade, 2 million additional jobs, most of which pay less than $100,000 a year, but that will cost almost a million dollars a year to create. And lest I forget the biggest surprise of all, corporations don't pay taxes, consumers do. Stay tuned in future broadcast. <clears throat> Stay tuned in future podcasts. We're going to tackle all the parts of this white paper, one piece at a time, and we're going to think about some new and novel ways in which we could pay for these things, pay for a really modern 21st century infrastructure, and do it in a way which invests in America instead of increasing the debt of America. And then we'll look at how these particular spending pieces fit into or over the $2.2 trillion 2022 spending proposal that was released by the White House this past Thursday. To call it a budget plan or even a budget would be to give both plans and budgets a bad name. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.